0: Psalm 145, uh, verses 1 to 9. It's on page 631 and on the screen. Psalm 145, verses 1 to 9. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful words. They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made.
1: Um, Could you please turn to Acts 15, which is found on 1,110 in your pew Bibles. And we are going to start from verse 22. So that's Acts 15, verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, all called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So the men went, so were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spreading some, spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. ...commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derba, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived... ...whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him... ...because of the Jews who lived in the area for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number.
2: Well, thank you very much, Jane, for reading that to us. Uh, Keep it open, it's a longish reading. Um, And then we'll... uh pray and look further at it together. Let's pray. Thank you Lord for these uh, wonderful snapshots of the life of the early church. Uh, We thank you for um, our part in in that whole story many years on. Um, We thank you that we get to hear about the early days of the Christian movement and the spread of the gospel. We pray it would Spur us on and encourage us in our discipleship, in our sharing of the message of Christ, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've had that sense as we go through these chapters in Acts together, that as we do that, we're looking at our family history, um, the snapshots of it, as it were, uh, before our eyes. People take family history very seriously today. Uh, Some of us here, those of a certain vintage, will remember the TV series Roots, which had a huge following. Uh, Probably for today's internet generation, it's more likely to be the popular website ancestry.co.uk. But we love to know about our forebears, even if the discoveries occasionally are in the form of a rather dark story that's been kept quiet. Anyway, I hope that as we've been reading these chapters of Acts, it's been a a similar experience for us, that we have the sense that we're looking at the family photo album. This is our story with our roots if we're Christians today. And if we're reading these chapters and it feels a bit like we're looking at fascinating family snaps from the past, then actually the specific episode we were thinking about Last week, and which we're thinking about as it continues this week, really is a a part, a vital part of our family history. Without the events of Acts chapter 15, if they hadn't happened, then humanly speaking, you and I would not be here tonight. It's that dramatic and essential. There would be no worldwide Christian church. At best, there would be maybe a small Christian sect within Judaism. Certainly no All Saints Little Shelford to speak of. Now, let me just recap. The presenting issue, you might remember, was the place of Gentiles in the church. And particularly, on what terms the church in Jerusalem would accept them as equal members of God's people. By this chapter, by Acts 15, it's about 10 years since beginning with Cornelius, Gentiles have been brought to faith in Christ and welcomed into the church by baptism. You remember how Cornelius was not only accepted by Peter, if you cast your mind back to it, when Peter reported the full facts of what had happened, it was the church of Jerusalem that actually uh, welcomed him, as it were. They praised God with the news that Peter brought. Then, Fast forward a little bit, when the church in Antioch began successfully reaching out to Greeks, again, it was the church back in Jerusalem that wanted to check out what was happening, which it did by sending Paul and Barnabas on that occasion. And they concluded, well, obviously God's at work in this new movement. And again, the Jerusalem church acknowledged that. But with this next stage, um, we've just had the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey. With this next stage, the stakes are getting raised higher. The question is how's is the Jewish church going to respond to the increasingly independent Gentile movement which is springing up? I see we've got one or two people who have lived through the empty nest stage or are beginning to undergo I like the story about a father visiting his 23 year old son in the new flat which his son had just moved into. And as they went out of each room, his father was taking great pleasure in switching the light on. finding the whole place was ablaze with light. And inevitably, the question came to him, Dad, why have you switched all the lights on? Every room we go out, of, you switched the light on? And his father just turned to him and said, I've waited 23 years for the pleasure of visiting you in your home and leaving the lights on. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit of a silly story. I don't mean to trivialise what's happening here. But I think we're familiar with the tensions which occur in families when the next generation grows older and begins to assert their independence. Now here's the question. What's going to happen in the relationship between the parent church in Jerusalem and these young but increasingly independent Jew-Gentile churches that are springing up all over the eastern Mediterranean? How's that relationship going to play out? How they answer that question is the topic of the church council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, which we looked at last week. And as I say, it's no exaggeration to say that our existence as Gentiles hung in the balance at this point. Now, with that lengthy introduction and a longish passage, I'm going to confess in advance, it's not strictly exposition tonight. I'm not going to take us through every verse of the passage what I want to do is to tease out two principles from today's section. And they are this first, unity on salvation issues. And then, secondly, flexibility on secondary issues. Let me try and explain what I mean by those headings uh, as we go through. First, then, unity on salvation issues. And that emerged as the council met in Jerusalem. Um, This is just recap, really. The debate was forced on them by the false teaching. The Judaizers were teaching that it was great to have all these Gentiles come to faith in Christ, but that was not enough, really. They needed Jesus plus something else. In this case, Jesus plus circumcision. And the council had established that that wasn't true. Not so. If you add circumcision on as an extra requirement you imply that Jesus didn't do enough, that Gentiles couldn't be accepted. Whereas God had plainly accepted the Gentiles without circumcision. God had accepted them on the basis of faith in Jesus alone, and if God had accepted them, then the Jewish church had better do so as well. So Peter's conclusion, if I can just nick one verse from last week to summarize it, is in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's a good little summary of their conclusions. And that's really why I get my first heading, Unity on Salvation Issues. It's the most wonderful news that on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross, any person who puts their trust in him, uh, whatever their background, wherever they're from, can be fully saved and freely accepted. There and then, no ifs, buts, or maybes, no religious extras needing to be added into the deal. In fact, if we do add to what Jesus has done, we're in fact implying that it is somehow deficient to add to it, is to take away from it. It would be like me going to an artist after they've applied the final brushstroke to a masterpiece, and asking if I could take a a paintbrush, and add a few extra touches of my own. That'd be an insult, wouldn't it? Only this is worse, because if I add my works to Jesus' work, I'm in fact relying on myself for acceptance before God. And I can't be accepted on those terms. And that's why unity on essentials like salvation is so, so important. Now, the Jerusalem council had recognized that, and their letter, which we had read, which is where our passage begins, implicitly emphasized it as well. We heard that in verses 22 to 28. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers with them they sent the following letter the apostles and elders your brothers to the Gentile brothers in Antioch Syria and Cilicia greetings we've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ therefore we're sending Judas and Silas, to confirm by word of mouth what we 're writing, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements and I hope you see without me unpacking every nook and cranny of those words, how the whole tone of that communication breathes the spirit of unity on salvation matters the essential salvation matters. So the apostles and the elders, they act visibly in unity with the whole Jerusalem church. They're not standing on their own authority. They don't just send a letter, because letters can't (coughs) smile. They send Barsabbas and Silas to confirm the written message. They don't cold shoulder the representatives from the Antioch church. The Jerusalem delegates travel back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they're described very warmly, aren't they, as dear friends. And we acknowledge the uh, great sacrifice they've made for the cause of Christ. There's great warmth there. Notice also how the apostles and elders call themselves brothers in verse 23. And our translation in our Bibles actually obscures the fact that they addressed their letter in verse 23 to the Gentile brothers. Not just Gentile believers. We're family. They're saying to them. In the letter itself, the apostles and elders deliberately distance themselves from the false teaching by saying that it was unauthorized and they acknowledge it's caused major distress. The false teaching has disturbed and troubled the Gentiles' minds. So cumulatively, all of those things are saying, we stand with you. We accept you as equals in God's people. Ending in that wonderful conclusion in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. I can't help but refer to that verse. It's the verse, that last one, 28, that's been hijacked unhelpfully by people who want to use the idea of the Holy Spirit guiding church councils and sinners. And the way that gets hijacked is to justify the thought that consensus in church councils and synods is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. This is not particularly recent debate, but there was a debate a few years back about women bishops in the Church of England. And I don't propose to go into that debate now and argue it either way. But a number of people said that because gradually the majority view had shifted to the point where two-thirds of the synod believed that it's right for women to be appointed bishops... That was, de facto, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Well, once you reason like that, of course the door is open to saying exactly the same if the consensus shifts on other issues. If, for example, we get to the point in church history where two-thirds of the church, say, in 20 years' time, thinks that euthanizing severely disabled children is okay, then you've got to ask, is that the voice of the Holy Spirit? Let me read from one of the articles of the Church of England. I like to dip into the 39 articles occasionally when there's no TNG and we've got a little time to unwind. (laughs) Article 21 says this. When general councils be gathered together, for as much as they be an assembly of men, whereof all be not governed with the spirit and word of God, they may err and sometimes have erred even in things pertaining to God. Wherefore, things ordained by them as necessary to salvation have neither strength nor authority, unless it may be declared that they be taken out of Holy Scripture. But I just like that that realism they had about just because a council or a synod has said it doesn't mean it's the voice of God. It's not necessarily the uh, witness of the Holy Spirit. And it makes much more sense, seems to me, to understand verse 28 as shorthand for what Peter had already said, that the Holy Spirit communicated his view on this matter in a very obvious way. Namely, that when Cornelius and the Gentiles became Christians, they had the same experience of the Holy Spirit (coughs) as the Jewish Christians had had at Pentecost. God the Holy Spirit had showed that they could be accepted, and justified 100% as much as the Christians who'd been born and bred in Jerusalem. They didn't need to be circumcised or anything else before they received the Spirit. It therefore seemed good to the Apostles and Elders and to the Holy Spirit to accept them without extras because they'd been fully saved in their initial conversion experience. And we've got to guard That freeness and fullness of salvation jealously. Unity on salvation issues. I wonder how alert you are. I wonder if it's somebody saying, hang on a minute, you've stopped mid-sentence at the end of verse 28. The Jerusalem church did impose some requirements, didn't they? Well, yes they did, but not as requirements for salvation. So let me move on to our second heading, Flexibility on secondary issues. And I'm hoping if these headings sound dull to you, you chew them over so you realize how momentous this all was for us. This is our history. Flexibility on secondary issues. I'm going to show it in three instances as they unfold in the next few chunks of... um, This little bit in Acts 15, 16. The first is in the requirements suggested in the letter. Let me read verses 28 to 9 again. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. It's significant, I think, the way they say, you'll do well to avoid these things, because they aren't elevating these commands to the level that the false teachers had elevated circumcision. You'll do well to avoid them. In the discussion in Jerusalem, James had given the reason for this advice, is that Moses had been proclaimed in the synagogues of these towns for a long, long time. So, We heard about this last week. Inevitably, there were converted Jews present in the churches alongside the Gentiles. And out of sensitivity to them, in some of the more obvious places where Gentile standards ran head-to-head with Jewish ceremonial law, the Gentiles were being encouraged to honour the Jewish laws, not as a means of salvation, but simply for the sake of unity. Technically, they could eat meat sacrificed to idols, but the right to that freedom was a secondary issue which they should hold lightly. Flexibility on secondary issues. Certainly from the response to the letter in verses 30 to 35, the Gentile Christians weren't taking this as a threat to their freedom. Just listen. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who'd sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So they were encouraged by the message that they were accepted as Gentiles. And they sent their gospel peace back with the Jerusalem Christians a model unity on salvation issues and flexibility on secondary issues next scene because the flexibility is displayed again in the little bust up between Paul and Barnabas in verses 36 to 41 sometime later Paul said to Barnabas let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I don't know if you noticed that as it was read. I mean, don't you think it's interesting that we've got recorded there, the second falling out of Christians in the chapter? This time, it isn't between people who you might easily envisage falling out, Jews and Gentiles. It's between Barnabas and Paul, who are two bosom buddies. (coughs) It's just a reminder that godly, spirit-filled Christians will sometimes have disagreements, sharp disagreements even the word that's used is the word from which we get the medical term paroxysm the other little lesson it seems to me is that such fallouts between Christians aren't necessarily bad news I think we're often terrified that if Christians end up in opposite camps on some issue it's a disaster but often out of it some good may come so In the first clash of the chapter, the end result was a much greater clarity about the gospel. Good news. In the second dispute between Paul and Barnabas, God overrules it so that instead of there being one gospel team, there are two heading off in two different directions. And that's not a bad outcome either, is it? Good news. But what made it possible Well, what made it possible was this, a flexible response to a situation where nothing much was at stake. The question of whether to take John Mark along or not wasn't a salvation issue. So Barnabas and Paul agree to disagree and get on with spreading the gospel. And a climb down happens has had, in one sense, happened beforehand. Unity on salvation issues, flexibility on secondary issues. Next scene. Same again in Paul's decision to have Timothy circumcised is going to happen later on. Let me read from the start of chapter uh, 16. Paul came to Derby and... Then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Now, some people have criticised Paul as they see it for giving into pressure to have Timothy circumcised how could he do that they wonder having stood his ground on the issue of circumcision before how does he sort of square that but actually there's a deep consistency in his thought and action once the principle had been established that circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation he's willing to make concessions in policy, again, I guess, for the sake of Jews in the area, what wasn't necessary for acceptance with God would still be advisable for Timothy to be acceptable to some people. Now, this specific issue of how many how Gentile churches can be formed in a setting when there are many Jews around is obviously is much less common today. But the need to distinguish between primary issues and secondary issues remains. And the principle we're getting again and again as we go through the the verses is this. On salvation by grace, we unite with other genuine Christians. We resist any force which undermines that core gospel message. But on secondary issues, we've got to be much more relaxed and flexible. And we tend to get exactly the wrong way around. We tend to be flexible on the gospel and then inflexible on our particular secondary matters. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. And then and only then I'll fellowship with you. That's how somebody express it. That's the message we often give off, isn't it? Which is a denial of the gospel. And if that had been the approach on the part of either Jews or Gentiles in Acts chapter 15, the gospel would have died out. Humanly speaking, we wouldn't have been here today. So notice, in conclusion, how because they distinguish between primary and secondary issues there's a lovely result in chapter 16 verse 5 so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers actually if you're very alert you'll have noticed that uh, three times in that chunk we've looked at Luke mentions that the outcome of this idea of unity on salvation flexibility on secondary issues is strengthening to the young churches who hear it. I think when we harden and become inflexible on the secondary issues, we usually think that that's going to strengthen other Christians. We think oh, it would be so good for us all if we all read this book or if we all went on this conference or if we all signed up to this conviction or if we all agreed with this climate change agreement or whatever it might be, sort of we take a secondary issue, we get all excited about it, we think this would be good for the church if we all signed up on this. Whereas in fact what strengthens the church and draws others in is a clear focus on the message of salvation and a willingness amongst all of us not to fight for our personal likes and dislikes and impose them on others. Backing down on secondary issues is what strengthens churches if the gospel's in place. Richard Baxter put it really well. On the necessary points, unity. On the questionable points, liberty. In everything he said, love. Well, thank God that they understood that in the early church. It's no exaggeration to say that we are here today because they grasped This crucial point. Let's pray together. And we pray Heavenly Father, that you give us the courage and the gratitude and the love and concern for the honor of Jesus Christ to hold tightly to the wonderful rescue he won for us and to hold loosely to things that are less important than that. And grant us the wisdom and the spiritual judgment to know the difference between the two. We pray that as we treasure Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us, uh, our church would indeed be strengthened and be the more effective to reach out with that message to others. We pray it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.